He's risen. He's risen All right. Okay, get a little bit better. I'm, I'm good with that. Hi, Terry. Okay, well, we are back in, obviously, in the Word, but we're not back in Matthew this week. We are back in the Easter series. Um, my, my goal uh, in this series is every year, you know, obviously we have Easter, and I like covering the story because the story is a historical story of real people who went to a real tomb and they found out it was really empty, empty right? And, but this year I wanted to focus more on the theology behind the story. And that's why we looked at Acts 17 and then we also looked, was it Acts 17? Yeah, it was Acts 17. And then uh, we looked at obviously Romans 3 the last two weeks. But this week I wanted to follow up um, uh, just to, to cap off Easter, so to speak, um, just looking at... Uh, Jesus himself, and, and uh, just, to, just to finish off this series and to uh, really put a, an exclamation point on it. So we'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Your outline says 23, but as my notes got up to 16 pages, and I should only preach eight at the most, I knew I had to cut off some, so we'll stop at 20 today. We will, I promise. But the reason I wanted to do this is I want you to see this is a poll that, that was taken in 1983 when I was in high school. And I haven't seen a recent poll, one that I could find right away, but I know it's worse because our culture has changed dramatically. In 83, a Gallup poll, uh, Americans were asked, who do you think Jesus is? 70% of those interviewed said Jesus was not just another man. 42% Jesus said Jesus got, was God among men. That's good. 27% felt Jesus was only human, but divinely called. 9% stated Jesus was divine because he embodied the best of humanity, like a Superman. Also, 81% of Americans considered themselves to be Christians. Barna came out when I couldn't find it. I didn't have time, but Barna came out with a, a stat in the mid to late 90s where the statistics were dramatically lower. Jesus, the understanding of Christianity uh, and some of the truths that are in the Bible, it's dramatically declining in the United States. And so I wanted to end up this, uh, this series looking at one of the most theologically rich passages on the statement of the person of Jesus Christ, all right? So that's why we're there today. Um, and, and, that's, and that's a hallmark of our church. We will always preach Christ, preach His Word. There's a, there's a little illustration I, I wanted to say is that uh, it was tied, there's an illustration about a young man who completed seminary and was ready to take his first church, and he was going to preach his first sermon as a pastor. And his mother's words of admonition just before her death, and she, you know, she knew he was going into the ministry, she said this, and he kept it in the, at the front of his mind, when you stand up to preach... Always say a good word for Jesus Christ. So as we jump into this passage, we're going to see a passage where Paul wanted to say such a good word for Jesus Christ. And he's saying it to those Christians there in Colossae and also to us here today. So before we jump in, this, the benefit of being in Matthew week after week is I don't have to remind you of the gospel and the, all the setting, although I do that occasionally because I do that. <laughs> But Colossians, before we jump in, we haven't been in this book. We were in it five years ago as a church. But just a real quick reminder is Paul is writing in the Colossians, he's writing a letter to a church that he had never been to. 
He had, he had been preaching for three years in Ephesus. Ephesus was, out, Ephesus was on the coast of Turkey, out on the coast, and there was a, a, a road that was, we call it like a, a postal route, where there are cities along this route. And matter of fact, when you look at chapter, Revelations chapter 2 through 3, you'll see the seven churches listed. Well, Colossae was one of them because it was on this route that went from Ephesus all the way inland. And they did a little hook kind of thing. Colossae had started because someone had become a Christian in Ephesus under Paul's ministry. They'd gone back, supposedly, I think it was their hometown. It's Epaphras is the one they think who started the church. And, and the church grew up there. It started because of someone else. So Paul hears about this church, and he hears there's bad things happening. And so he's writing to these Christians to affirm what they had been taught and, and to attack the heresy going on there. The particular heresy that was happening in the Colossian church, the one that he wrote to attack, was a, it was the beginnings of what's known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was kind of a, a, a religious philosophy kind of thing. And the idea behind it is that God is so perfect and he's a spirit that there's no way he could be in touch with matter. And between him and where we're at now is there's levels, a series of steps, emanations for him to get from there to us. And, and, and the, clo- the more you knew, the more you would be more truly godly. It was all about what you knew. Matter was evil, so it wasn't really, didn't really matter how you lived necessarily, but it's what you knew. And so what was happening was a spiritual elitism, and these false teachers were using it to control the church, and they were denigrating Jesus because they said Jesus was God, but he wasn't fully God, but he couldn't have been a man because if he had a body made of matter, he was evil. So he was one of the steps between God and us. Okay, so they're, they're taking away some of his deity. And then angels were also one of these steps along the way. And so they ended up worshiping angels as well. So you'll see some of this coming out in the letter. But what happens is in our particular passage, he starts with the most critical thing of all, Jesus Christ and his deity. And, I, and that's what we're going to look at, at this just wonderful, it looks like it's a church hymn, by the way, the way it's written with the parallelism and all. It's an early church hymn about Jesus Christ, his person and work. So, we're going to look, and by the way, knowledge is a big word in this, in, in this whole letter because they're all about knowledge. He's giving them the true knowledge. And what he's going to say to them throughout the letter is say, you've already learned this. Don't listen to those teachers, okay? So here we go. I'm going to hop, we're going to read the passage and then just walk right through it here. So, 115. He is the image, icon, imprint exact representation of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him in all things, by, for, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, as students of Scripture and you're studying, you're studying God's Word, one of the things when you're studying is what are you supposed to look for? When you read something, what is something that you know is it can be one of the main points of the passage? Repetition. And what do you see repeated? All and every. And then you also see in him, by him, through him, and for him. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the scope of this. This is one of those passages that is trying to be all-encompassing to make a huge point. So as we walk through this passage, know that here at the Bridgemore Park, first, we believe in, worship, love, obey, and proclaim Jesus Christ because Jesus is God incarnate, the God-man. That's in the very first, phrase, the first sentence there. Our hope is anchored to Christ's deity. In him, we see the perfect representation of God. That's where it says he is the image of the invisible God. That word is icon, icon in the Greek. And we recognize that word icon. And what is an icon supposed to be? Something that represents, okay? Uh, when you have on, on a, a quarter, you've got, you've got a, a, a face on there. What's the face on the quarter? George Washington, right? It's an imprint. It's the same one on all the quarters. And that's supposed to be a representation of his face, his profile, all right? And that's the picture here. So in the, in the Greek, it's, it's supposed to have actually two ideas here. One is likeness, and I think it's on the notes here. Christ is the image of God in the sense that he is the exact likeness of God, like the image of a, on a coin or the reflection of a mirror. The other idea is manifestation. The image of God, he is the image of God in the sense that the nature and being of God are perfectly revealed in him. Therefore, Paul can boldly say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that in Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. Paul's statement leaves no place for these vague emanations or these vague how many steps to God and Jesus is partway through or something. He's making it very clear. And Jesus himself said this. Jesus said in John 14, 9, we all know John 14, 6. We, we should know. It's one of those verses you should know. What is John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. So he said both positively and negatively, he's the only way, all right? But then just a couple of verses later, he says this, the shocking statement, a man saying this. Jesus said to him, he's talking to Philip. Philip had asked him a question. Have I been with you so long and you still don't, do not know me, Philip? Here's what he says. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. A man said that. Oh, it's a coffee pot, sorry. <laughs> That's an amen from the coffee pot. <laughs> amen. That's right. Okay, back on this, folks. Here we go. <laughs> So we see Jesus saying that, but we see John in his prologue to the whole book in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2.9, same book, a little bit later, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of 
the shining of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And you guys have to understand this. This is so important why we need to know this. Satan doesn't want us to know exactly this. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why we have to know this and stand on this. Jesus is God. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. So when the disciples were with him and saw him and interacted with him, when children sat on his lap, he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. People want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's why we're taking all this time to go through the Gospel of Matthew. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So my good word about Jesus in this first point is he's God. He's God the Son, and we teach and proclaim this truth. That is going to be a hallmark of this church always. Second, we believe in, worship, love, obey, and proclaim Jesus Christ because he is, Jesus is the king creator. I use that word king a lot because it's not in our culture, but it's so part of Scripture to, to emphasize to us he's not the president. That's the leading man in the United States for us is president. But what do we do with the president every four years? We vote. You don't get no vote here, folks. Jesus is king. As creator, he's owner, ruler, head, sovereign. No voting. Whether you know it or not, like it or not, agree with it or not, believe it or not, he is the king. Right? Amen to that. That's, and that's, our hope is grounded in that, though. There's no changing with him. And when he rules, he rules it with all authority, with all knowledge with all power and all perfection and all holiness and all justice and all love. All those things are true in Jesus Christ. I want him ruling me because he's a good ruler. Our hope rests in his rule over creation. He is called the firstborn over all creation, of all creation. And, and it's important we understand that firstborn is not talking about first in chronology. It's talking first in, in status. As head over. That's what that word means. He is the first in rank, position, status because he's the king. Psalm 89, 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's when Jesus comes as Messiah. Hebrews 1, 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn in, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Who can be, who can be worshiped only, according to God and Isaiah? God. And yet, here we have God, we have this, this figure being worshipped because He is God. Jesus is God. He's the King of all creation. He's the head of, the one presiding over all creation. And as creator, He's the owner. Verse 16, for by Him all things were created. By, me, by that word by, is a, it's by means of. He's the agent of creation. And it says, all things were created. Logically, if all things have been created by Christ, then he of necessity is uncreated, an absolute proof of his deity. And that's where it's, uh, it's so, so important to know this. It says, all things. That's why I was emphasizing that word, all. 
All things are created by him and through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. We'll talk about that in a second. But here's the deal. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses, when they change their translation to say he's over all things, he, he cre- he, they, they change that they, he, they believe he is a created. He was the first of the created beings by God. And they change it. We have their original transcripts from the 1950s where they hadn't changed that in their, book, in their Bible yet. And when Walter Martin, the Bible answer man who was until the 80s, uh, he, he, he showed how they, their, their, he used their own Bible against them and they had to change it because the Bible is so clear, so clear. When it talks about Jesus, He is God. He is the Creator. He is the King. He's not the firstborn in the sense of being born. He's the first created one. I mean, the first, I'm sorry, not the first created one, but He's the first one with status over everything. Where am I? There we go. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, for, for, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus is God. Read that in John 1, 3, Ephesians 3, 9. And he's, why does he say in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities? He's making it very clear to these people who are taught to worship angels in Colossae, and we have that in our culture too in certain parts. They are not to be worshipped. They are created beings. And when he says rulers or, or authorities or dominions or thrones, evidently there is a hierarchy within the spiritual world. There's different types of angels. We don't, we don't have enough of a picture. We know there's cherubim, seraphim, and there's archangels and all this. But we, we, he's trying to say, look, whatever's out there, who's the creator? Jesus is. He's over all of this, whether visible or invisible, seen or unseen. So for us as Christians, what kind of, when people start to talk about demons and, oh, I'm the man, like if there's an Antichrist and all this stuff, they start, what do we say? He's king over them. He's, he's the creator. He's the sovereign one. Jesus is God. He's the creator. He's the owner. And if we're his children, he's on our side, Right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's true, folks. It's true. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. This is said of O Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus is said to be this person in the New Testament. Amazing. It's all over the scriptures. I'm only reading one, but there's six others that I, I had to cut out, but they're here. Ephesians 1.21, 3.10, 6.12, Colossians 2.10 and 15, 1 Peter 3.22. It says, all things were created through him and for him. Through him. He's the agent of creation. He's the, he's the, he was in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the Word was God. He was there at the beginning. He's, he's the agent of creation. He even says the Holy Spirit was there. What do we know the Holy Spirit was there at creation? Where do we know that from? Yeah, Genesis 1, the very first verses, and the Spirit was over the face of the waters. The Trinity was involved in creation. He was there. John 1, 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Positively, all things were made through him. 
negatively. There wasn't anything that was made that was not made by him. John is trying to make it very clear here. Revelations 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. For him, Philippians 3.21, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Wait, did you hear that, folks? Our bodies are going to be transformed at some point. Can't you wait for that? Philippians 3.21 will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. All things were made by him and for him. For him, meaning everything has its purpose. God is so sovereign over all creation that He controls even the wicked. He is so sovereignly in control. Do you guys understand that? Nothing. That's why Romans 8.28 makes sense. And we know that all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. He says He works together for the good. But what is the good? And it tells us in the next verse, what is that good? To make us, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So it says even the worst things in life. Some of us are going through it right now. Some of you have some, and all of us will at some point in the future. We all have troubles and trials. And wicked people do wicked stuff, and it happens to us. But here's the deal. Who's still in charge? God is. He's in charge of us. If you're a Christian, you get the benefit of that. And we know that all things work together for the good. There's two conditions. We're called according to His purpose and love Him. You've got to remember, that verse applies to you and to me if we're in Jesus Christ. That's so important. Verse 17, he is before all things. Here it's talking about he is eternally creator and sustainer of all creation, where it says he's before all things and in him all things hold together. We already read John 1, 1 through 3 already, but John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. Jesus saying straight up, He existed before creation. In glory, with the Father. Wow. Yes, this is a man saying this. So that's why we're... If you've been a Christian a long time, you've heard some of this before. But imagine a man saying this. John 8, he said that statement where he says, before Abraham was, I am. What was he doing there? He was claiming the name of Yahweh. Who was he talking to? His disciples? No, to opponents, the Jewish religious leaders. And when they said that, when he said that, what did they do? They were offended and they recognized blasphemy and they wanted to stone him. His opponents recognized his claim right away. He wasn't disguising his claims, folks. Wow. 
a man saying this. He claims God's title. In Revelation 1.8, we see God the Father saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then in verse 17 of chapter 1, we see Jesus talking, and he says this, When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John talking. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, this is Jesus talking, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He's claiming the title of God, the Father. There's no, there's no distinction. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no uh, dis, uh, oh gosh, the word. You can't fight what's there. There's no controversy here. <laughs> Jesus said it clearly all the way through. He is God. He was claiming titles. Matter of fact, in the New World Translation, they didn't change this passage until more recently. There's just too many places in Scripture where, in the New World Translation, in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, there's too many places where Jesus is claiming and doing things that God alone could do. So cool. Psalm 75.3, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. And in him all things hold together from Colossians here. Verse 17, in him. There's a, I, I'm not a scientist, but here's, here's my little understanding. It's like me and cooking, right? So, so we are made up of matter, but matter is made up of atoms, right? There's neutrons, electrons, and protons, okay? Now, what do we know about like matter? What are they supposed to do? No, like does not attract, it repels. And one of the things scientists cannot figure out is how all this stuff actually stays together. Think about that. What does the Bible say? And in Him, all things hold together. It's, he's our sustainer. Now, as Christians, do you believe that? Do you embrace that? It's amazing to see how when we just study the, the inner universe, the outer universe, the greatness of creation, and to see how much we really don't know, but then how the Bible come back, we see truth after truth. Jesus is God. He's creator. He's sustainer. He holds all things together. My good word about Jesus is that he's the creator of all things, the king, owner, and sovereign ruler, and because of that, I have hope. Because if I'm the ruler, you guys are in trouble. If you're the ruler's, we're all in trouble. We need the perfect holy God to be the one who is king and ruler over us because he knows what's best. Perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and Jesus is that man. So third, we believe in, worship, love, obey, and proclaim Jesus Christ because Jesus is the head of the church. I'm not the head of this church. I'm just the guy who talks at you all the time. Jesus is the head of this church. We've got elders. Are they the head of the church? No, we do it together. Jesus is the head of this church. That's why if you see us doing something or planning something that goes against Scripture, we're wrong, and you should call us out on it. Jesus is the head of the church. Our hope flows from, from His rule over the church. He is our wisdom, our leader, and our guarantee that His church won't fail, but rather be victorious. Where does He say that? Did I put it up there? Oh, I put it up there, the quote. What is that quote from? I didn't put the reference. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. He said that and promised it. Where did he say that? 
Matthew 16, we'll be looking at that next week. We're back into Matthew. He's the one who rules this church. He bought this church with his blood, but he rules over it, but he's also guaranteed that the church will not fail. The advance of the kingdom will never stop because of Jesus Christ. Not because of his people, but because of him. Jesus is the man. He is exalted, held up, worshipped as the ruler of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23 says, and he put all things, God put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's the head of the body, the church, and we exalt him as the head. He's exalted because his resurrection proves his place, his honor. It says that in verse 18 where it goes on to say, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That word beginning means he's the beginner, he's the founder of the church. He's the first in the resurrection family, the head of the resurrected ones. See, Romans makes a big point about in Adam, all what? Die. All have sin. But it makes a big point about in Christ, he's the beginning of a new creation type family where you are baptized with him in his death and raised to new life in his resurrection. And now you're part of his resurrected family if you're a Christian. And he is the firstborn, the head over all that creation. He's the first of the resurrected ones in preeminence and to be worshipped. And his resurrection actually is a guarantee of what's going to happen to us. 1 Corinthians 15 says it clearly. What happened to him is going to happen to us. The body he had after the resurrection is the type of body we'll have after the resurrection. And what was that body like? It was really good. How so, Steve? Walk through walls? Could he enjoy food? He ate. What else? He drank. But right, he could, he could disappear immediately. He could walk and talk and be recognized. But also, it was something different about him because he wasn't recognized right away. So, it's going to be interesting to see. But I can't wait to get the new body. Oh, my knees, my balding head, this weight. Anyone with me? Yeah. Right? Okay, thank you. He is exalted because his resurrection proves that he is God. It, Romans 1 4 says he was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. It was, it was no mistaking who he is. John eleven twenty five through 26. And I love reading this at, at uh, funerals. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he asked. Do you believe this? That he's the resurrection and the life? I did a funeral yesterday. A man who's attended here several times, uh, Grant Olweiler, the, some of you know Mark and April Brandis, their, their dad, he passed away. Just a wonderful guy. But you know, the last few, last few years was really rough. But you know what? He had hope. Why did he have hope? Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. His hope was grounded in Jesus as God, Savior, Redeemer, Friend. Yeah. It was a fun funeral yesterday, was it not? 
it was fun. It was a rejoicing time. Sad to see him go, but man, he had 32 great-grandkids there. I mean, just a huge family that most of them were Christians because of the legacy. It's so fun. It was a celebration, a celebration. In the preaching of the early church, we see Paul saying in, in Acts 26, 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we now can have that proclaimed gospel that gives us light in this dark world. We exalt Jesus because of who He is and His resurrection and the hope we have because of it. Jesus is exalted because of the incarnation, being fully God and fully man. Verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That word is theotos. Well, it's a hard one. There's some added Greek in there. But Paul is declaring by this, using this word, that, that in the Son there dwells all the fullness of absolute Godhead. He was and is absolute and perfect God. Colossians 2, 3, and 9, For in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How, uh, Paul can't, when he starts talking about Jesus in this, he can't use all and every and fullness enough to try to describe Jesus. Isn't that cool? I have a small Jesus too often in my life. And it's, it's passages like these that, that should make us realize how grand and how big He is. We have too many pictures of Jesus hanging out with the multitudes, a, a man who, who was tired and, you know, he had to sleep. And he was rejected and all these things. But, but you understand, He was here in, humbly to come on a mission. But, but we get a glimpse of Jesus in His wonder and His glory. We see it at the Mount of Transfiguration. It says that the picture is that his, it's like his face was ripped aside, the, the earthly veil. And when, when James, Peter, and Paul saw, or Peter and Paul, when Peter, James, and John saw it, what did they do? They fell down and worshiped. They saw Jesus, it's just the, the ripping apart. They saw him for who he was and they were shocked. And we'll get to see that one day. Amazing. He is also exalted, not just because of His resurrection and incarnation, but also because of what He did for us. He exalted, he's exalted because He brought ultimate reconciliation. Verse 20, And through Him to reconcile to Himself a few things. All things. Right? To reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of His cross. And we talked about that a little bit last week, but the, the point is here is that He has brought ultimate reconciliation. There's no other things coming, no other things done before. That was the reconciliation, the way to make an enemy at peace with God and now in God's family, uh, providing atonement, being the substitute. All these things we talked about the last couple of weeks. There's only one person who did it in fullness for all time and for all things everywhere. It's Jesus Christ. And He's exalted because of that. 
We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to the saints because Jesus Christ is the man. He is the one who's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. The Bible calls him our advocate, if we're Christians. What's an advocate? Your defense lawyer. He's the one who hears us. He's the one with the power to do whatever he wants in our lives and for us, to advance his kingdom. Do you guys understand that? That's one of the problems with the, Catholic, the, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. When you're praying to saints, praying to Mary, there's actually a big movement, it was just in the news a couple of weeks ago, that they want to elevate, again, their big push to make Mary what's called the co-redemptrix with Christ, co-redeemer. We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament, folks. Jesus is the man. Nowhere in the New Testament to say worship anyone else but Jesus Christ, to pray to anyone else but Jesus Christ. He's our Redeemer. He's our Lord. He's the one who's reconciled us. He alone. I know I'm saying it a lot, but this is, this is so important for us to understand. And no, He's not too busy with all the problems of the world. He hears us because He's God. He made peace by the blood of His cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We get to declare this message because of Jesus and what He did. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, though He knew no sin. He was innocent. Why did He do it? So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. What an exchange. The perfect one got treated as if he was a full-on sinner. He took the wrath of God for our side. And what do we get in exchange? Christ's perfect righteousness. It's counted, it's credited to us. That's how God considers us. Amazing. He made peace by the blood of His cross. Romans 5.10, For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God. Uh, for if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We've been at peace with God and reconciliation, and now we have life in Him. And this is where I, I, I'll just read the last part of the passage and not make a bunch, but just hear this. Finally, we believe in, worship, love, obey, and proclaim Jesus Christ because Jesus is the Redeemer of His people. Our only hope lies in, the sac in His sacrificial death and sanctifying work. Truly, our hope is in Christ alone. Again, this is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, and there's five uh, solas, they call it. Sola is the word for only. Sola fide, sola Christa, sola Deo Gloria, sola Scriptura, and sola, oh my goodness, I just blanked. Sola gracia, by the grace, that's right. Jesus Christ, it's through Him alone, faith in Him alone. It's the grace of God alone through Jesus Christ and His death. We know this in Scripture, and I keep, that's why we preach from the Word, because this is where we get our authoritative teaching. 
It's not my opinion. We just got to go through God's word to know Jesus. He's the redeemer. Look at verse uh, 21. We see Paul turning from talking about Jesus, and now he's talking to the Colossians, and he's talking to us. And you, you all, that word is the plural you, who once were alienated, foreigners, outside, outsiders, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, evil mind, evil actions, bad root, bad fruit. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. How many of you feel above reproach before God? I know I don't. There's times I sin. I know that God still has a lot of work to do on me. But here's the deal. When Jesus died, He said three words. It is finished. Not just, oh, my job's done. I get to die now and everything will be better. His work of redemption, of atoning for our sins was finished so that when God sees you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, He declares you not guilty but sees you as in Christ and sees you as holy. He sees Jesus. He sees His blood and He sees that we're cleansed, we're paid for. That's true. We are. If we were to die right now, we would be presented before God. If you're a Christian, you'd be immediately presented before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Do you understand that? I'm still learning it. Do you believe it? You have to. Please do. But then look what Paul says here in the last verse. If indeed you continue in the faith. You got to keep fighting for it, folks. We're called to respond. Stable and steadfast. If indeed you continue in the faith that you heard. Paul's reminding them, you already learned the right gospel. Don't listen to these false teachers. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. And, and that's my, my calling too. To preach the word. And I'm going to preach this. And we will always be known for being a church that proclaims Jesus Christ as God, as man, as Savior, as Lord, as our shepherd. And as long as I do that, we have hope, folks. And the minute I stop, kick me out. So my good word about Jesus is that He is our God, our Creator, our Ruler, our Head, our Hope, and our Redeemer. And the so what of all this is, is if, you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ... There's a couple things. Don't do this. Don't categorize Jesus as another great man, teacher or philosopher, as one among many, just a very, you know, varied idea, very options out there. He is without equals. And I love this quote. Said it before, I'll read it to you all again. C.S. Lewis, great uh, uh, author from the mid-20th century, I am trying here to prevent, in his book, A Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus Christ. They, they'll say this, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic, <laughs> I love this, on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Why would he be the devil of hell? He's saying, look, for you to go to heaven, you have to believe in me. If he was a lunatic, he's crazy. If he's uh, serious about that, but he's just a man, he's the worst man there could be because he's leading people astray to the eternal damnation. Either he's a lunatic or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So don't categorize him as that. You have to take him for what he says he is. So you have a choice. And in my, in my, if you're not a Christian, I, I just I call out to you. Please repent of your sins. Believe in him. Okay, there's, there's a bunch of people here who would say amen to that. <laughs> right? Because we know that in Jesus we find life and hope, purpose, forgiveness, freedom, and salvation through Jesus Christ for all eternity. Amen to that. Life with Christ is an endless hope. Without Him, it's a hopeless end. Get that? So followers of Jesus, what are we called to do? Rejoice in His salvation. And respond to this call in verse 23 to, to persevere in the faith and to represent Him well by how you live and what you say, right? So in all this, we are to stand on this, but we are not just to stand and hold it to ourselves. We've got to proclaim this. Proclaim doesn't mean yell it out. Proclaim means live it out and tell people why you have hope. Do your closest friends, even two or three. I try, when I talk about this, I try to limit it to two or three. Do your closest friends know you're a follower of Jesus Christ? And if they know you go to church, that's okay, but that's not enough. Have you told them why you became a Christian? Risk it. And if you don't have any friends like, you know what? If you don't have any friends that you've intentionally told, I, I, I'm going to challenge you now. Pray for one. Just to start praying for that person. Just pray for them that God would open their eyes and that He would use you in their life. Two, start loving them. Loving actions. Earn their trust. Three, ask them what they believe. Take that risk. It's not, so you don't have to debate them. And then, four, as you take these steps, I'll bet you that door opens to have that conversation. And then what are you going to do? You going to tell them about Jesus? Oh, it's going to be scary. But that's okay. Because Jesus will use whatever we do for His glory because He's in charge. He's in charge, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. You are king. You are creator. And I, I confess that I, I don't treat you that way in my life enough. I get distracted by all the things going on in our lives, bills to pay, uh, things to take care of, 
uh, air conditioner broke in the car, <laughs> whatever. Just, just I'm so easily distracted, Lord, and I, and I, I just repent of that. I, I want to be a better follower, one who understands you are the creator of, of all things, the sustainer, the one to be exalted and worshipped in my daily life, not just on Sundays. So God, I just pray that would be true in my life. I pray for our, our church and this church family, God, that this would be true more and more, ever-increasing glory. We would be reflecting you to this world. And we'd be knowing you just relationally, so experientially that we would understand you. And, and as, we, as we grow, that we'd be a better conduits of your grace to this world. But I want that so bad. And I thank you for Easter. I thank you for how that changed history, changed my personal history, Lord, you changed all of human history. Thank you, Jesus. And we long for your return. Until you come back, may we be faithfully representing you and uh, use this church. God, we want people to know about you through this body and through the churches in this valley that proclaim you. God, may it be so. Grow your kingdom. We love you, Lord Jesus, and all these things. Amen.